Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson. And today, as Christmas is fast approaching, we thought that many of you might be heading out shopping for gifts for family and friends. What better thing to buy that business freak or political nerd in your life than a good book? So today, I'm going to be joined by a few of our favourite guests here on the show to look at the books that they liked. And you never know, it might make the ideal gift for those news-obsessed people in your life that you have to buy for this weekend. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter. Twitter at StockNT. Now, first up today, this year was a bumper year for news. So I'm amazed that this guy gets any time to read at all. But here to tell us his top picks of the year is Mick Clifford of The Examiner. Mick, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mandy. Now, Mick, do you get much time to read? Uh, Are you a Kindle or a book book reader? It's a struggle, I have to say. I'm a book book reader. Um, Unless I actually make a conscious effort, what happens is I fall into bed, I read three or four pages and I'm gone like a light. So I have to make the effort to read and there's nothing I'd love more than just the extra hours in the day to do it, you know, because there's so many good books out there and I'm forever buying books that I don't get around to reading. Yeah, well, you've you've given us a couple of choices today, but let's start with your first one. Uh, Give us that uh, book about Donald Trump. What is it and who wrote it? Yeah, Maggie Haberman. Now, she is a a political Washington DC correspondent for the New York Times. Previously, she worked, I think she started out one of the New York tabloids. She's a New Yorker. The, the great thing about this book, to my mind, as opposed to any other book about Trump, is she, first of all, she just reports. She's not sensationalizing anything. She's not coming from an agenda or anything. But also, she goes all the way back to Trump's time in New York, his formative years mm. and, and his younger self. And she reported on him. And I remember myself, actually, I, I took off from New York myself in the mid-80s. I went working in buildings over there. And I remember the kind of... Um, Donald Trump and Ivana, his wife at the time, and they were this real star gays couple in New York. But it's a, it's a fantastic read from that point of view. It gives you a real psychological profile of this man who came to dominate so much. And I suppose, ironically, in one way, Mandy, he's probably, according to the most recent events, literally in the last few weeks, he's fast becoming yesterday's man when we thought... Unfortunately, for most of us, he might be around a lot longer, but it's definitely a really good, uh, it's a really good read. And do you think that's why Maggie Haberman uh, writes in in the more compelling way than her contemporaries, because she's been following him from the get go? Very much so. And also because she's not looking for the gotcha moment, Mm. because God knows there are enough of those with Donald Trump. Um, And like the other thing I have to say is there were points in the book where I just started laughing and I just couldn't stop. Not that she was trying to be humorous, but some of of the thing is so ridiculous around Trump. And she just reported the whole thing in a deadpan way. Um, So from that point of view, I really think uh, for somebody who hasn't read any of the books on Trump, this to me is far and away the best one you could go near. Yeah, that's a really good point because there's so much out there. But I I read a little bit about his early life from her and you're right, it's very funny. But also this notion that he's sort of been this very successful entrepreneur. His early life was really about inheriting a great business, wasn't it? Oh, completely. And not just that, even since then. Mm. And, And this is the other thing that really comes across in the book. Far from being an entrepreneur, 
He is a brilliant PR man, a salesman, projecting this image of himself and doing it in a very aggressive way that he got his way so many times. You know, something mm. like a cross between, I don't know, um, Charlie Hawley and Bernard Ingram or someone like that. Like, you know, I mean, it, 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 this really comes across that he is not the great entrepreneur that he projected himself to be. And in a, in a, a ludicrous kind of way, there's a sense of genius about him that he got to where he did both in terms of how he projected himself as a businessman and then as a TV personality, which probably did suit him, and then that he could become president. It's quite an unbelievable achievement for somebody who, when it comes down to it, has so little beyond hard neck. Yeah, if it was a fictional book, you probably wouldn't get to the end of it. Um, Mick, take us through some of your other uh, picks for the year. Well, another one I thought really good is really contemporary on Mandy, and that is, and another one that there's been a lot written about, and that is, you know, the prospect it seems that there's going to be a border poll or the possible reunification of the island. Maliki O'Doherty's Can Ireland Be One, I thought was an excellent book because he's coming from a position not of projecting the mechanics or the possibilities or, you know, trying to propel us towards a border poll, but basically saying, I'm a northerner, born a Catholic. Um, give me a reason why we should all be one. And, and he explores the history of the island. He goes back and it's very interesting. He kind of dissects the proclamation to some extent. I've, he does a fair bit on Daniel O'Connell, somebody who's long forgotten. Mm. And like, you know, he, he, like just lines like saying, Daniel O'Connell and Padraig Pierce both claim to speak for the Irish people. But if we define a people according to what they are ready to fight for, it is impossible to conceive a coherent Irish sense of purpose. And, he, you know, he he um, he strays from what you might call the narrative, the nationalist narrative we've all been handed down. And he really poses that question. If we are to unite, then we need to do a lot of work in terms of uniting people as opposed to institutions and doing that rather than concentrating on this issue of uh, persuading people. Yeah, really interesting to juxtapose the debate that we're having today against that historical background. So definitely I'll be checking out that one over Christmas. What else uh, did you pick? I see there's one for, for about the Civil War and Kerry on your list. Yeah, and look, I'm from Kerry, but leave that aside. The Civil War, you know, there's been so much written about it. And it is, look, it was horrendous, but a fascinating period in Irish history. And we're coming to the depth of this depth, I think is the word, the centenary at the moment when the, the executions began. But this, and, and Kerry was a place where it was really, really vicious. Like there's three outrages of um, anti-treaty forces being tied around the mine and blown to bits in reprisals and an awful lot of other stuff. My own granduncle was summarily executed um, after an engagement in, in, in South Kerry. But Ono O'Shea in this book, he gives it against very factually based account and he doesn't come down into politics on one side or the other. But it's really a book to be read in terms of, you know, never again, and, and, and sort of as well, it's perplexing how a sort of a hatred seeped into the national psyche over such a short period of time among people who had been really comrades in arms up until that point. But it is a really, really, um, really interesting read, I have to say. And your final pick then, Mick, what was that? My final pick is a 
slightly off center, Mandy. Uh, Andrew Doyle, he's a, a comedian, Derry born, but if you, you might actually where you come across him, <laughs> a few of us might be watching, but GB TV, the, 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 the kind of right wing um, mm. thing in, in the UK. He does a program there. He's actually Derry born, but he's a comedian. He's also, I think, he's a PhD in literature. The New Puritans, how the religion and social justice captured the Western world. In broad terms, he's talking about how what you might call an authoritarian left has come to some extent to dominate issues around um, society Mm. and how they're defining social justice as identity politics. Now, I certainly wouldn't agree with all he said, but I think it's very much food for thought in terms of what he's putting out there and it's very well researched uh, and, and very well written. And again, I think it's good from the point of view of we appear increasingly to live in a kind of a binary world and it's always good in that respect to, to get as many views as possible to, to, to try and get a grasp of what's really going on. Well, certainly, Mick, I think there is a pattern in your books in that the, the journalist in you likes to see something that's written in a way that you can make up your own mind. And that's never a bad thing. But Mick, thanks so much for taking the time. I'm still in awe of how you got to read all of those books, uh, <laughs> writing as much as you do. But for now, that's Mick Clifford of The Examiner. Mick, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Mandy. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, this is News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson, and we're getting recommendations for books of the year from our favourite guests. And next up, it's Linda Daly of The Sunday Times. Linda, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Now, Linda, what book have you chosen and why? Okay, so I chose The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Making of the New Future. Um, It's written by Sebastian Malaby, who is a finance journalist. And the reason I chose it was because it has been named the Sunday Times Best Business um, Book of the Year. Um, and I was lucky enough to read it and it's just fascinating. Um, so it's basically it's about venture, venture capitalism in, in California and how kind of venture capitalists were behind some of the biggest businesses. Um, you know, so they that they were kind of behind the success of the businesses. And it goes through and, you know, we all know Steve Jobs. We know Mark Zuckerberg. We know all these names. We don't know a lot about how they got started often or how they got the money to become the companies that they became today. So this goes through and it's full of anecdotes and, you know, really interesting stories. And it has a commonality to it and a thread that is also about the art of disruption. And that's, I suppose, a thing that kind of runs through these types of of people in Silicon Valley. Did you get more more in-depth insight into what those disruptors had in common reading this book? Yes, definitely. Um, I suppose one of the main things is they're all willing to take chances, mm. right? So the power law, you know, to describe what it is, the odds of creating like this huge, massive returns, it, the way you kind of reach those odds is by investing in lots of different companies. Um, so, you know, when venture capitalism started, the, they, you know, the venture capitalists were very much involved in the companies. So you might have had, um, so just just thinking, right? So Atari, the, comp- the, the computer company Atari, and um, they wanted to. Um, the, the venture capitalist was Don Valentine, right? And he 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 ended up um, developing Sequoia Capital, which is the most successful venture capitalist firm. He wanted Atari to sell it. Mm. The owner of Atari, um, Nolan Bushnell, was like, no, 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 I'm not selling. So what Don Valentine did was, um, it was he wanted them to sell it to Warner. Um, entertainment. So what Don Valentine did was he got a private plane and flew Do- uh, Bushnell out to this to meet Warner Brothers. But um, Clint Eastwood happened to be on the plane. They set that up. Clint Eastwood made him a drink on the plane. Then they went and they watched a, a private screening of one of Clint Eastwood's films. 
Bushnell sold the company. Um, you know, but mm. later on then, as, as, as time went on, some of the entrepreneurs would kind of fight back, you know. So, so the venture capitalists would kind of, they would, you know, get them to hire the teams that the venture capitalists wanted. So if you look at eBay, um, when eBay was set up, um, the, the venture capitalists behind that benchmark capital, they invested money in eBay. They wanted eBay to bring in their own team. So they approached Meg Whitman. Um, so Meg Whitman came on board in eBay. So when she came on board, it was like 30 employees. It was getting three million a year. By the time um, the, she, she left, there was like three billion a year mm-hmm. and three fifteen thousand employees. So that was all the venture capitalists. So they disrupted, you know, the whole scene. Um, it kind of changed later on. You know, the likes of Mark Zuckerberg and Larry Page and Sergey Brin of Google, they fought back and they said, no, we're not leaving our companies. And you can see then how that kind of directed. And now those, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is still in charge of Facebook, so he's not going anywhere. Linda, as you said there, it has won the Sunday Times and also the Financial Times Business Book of the Year. Why do you think this book is so successful? I, I think Malaby has such a way of you know, he breaks it down, you know, it's just so much, so full of anecdotes. But then also, you know, he doesn't just make it about these random figures that nobody knows about. Mm. You know, he brings in all of the the names of, of the companies that we all know. And actually Stripe gets a mention, our own Irish company, and how that started and how Sequoia Capital gave the Stripe guys the money. And, you know, and just he describes how Michael Moritz, the chairman of, of uh, Sequoia Capital, went in and met. Um, the Collisons, uh, John and Patrick Collison, when they were living in a house share and he was smelling it going, oh God, this kind of smells. And, uh, you know, and, and, he, and they said, do you want to drink? And he said, what do you have? And they said, well, milk and water. And, you know, so it kind of brings it alive for you that, mm. you know, you can kind of imagine this rich man turning up to this dingy flat and, and but then giving them like lots of money to get started. And who do you think this book might appeal to? We're looking at uh, some books today for people who might be looking for those last minute gifts for the kind of businessy okay. nerds in their life. Who do you think might this book might appeal to? Okay, admittedly, I'm probably a nerd. <laughs> I'm fascinated with it and I, obviously I'm involved. But, you know, if you have anybody who has any interest in business at all, um, you know, it's it's just, he, he really breaks it down. It's really interesting. I mean, look, and he, he makes the case that, you know, venture capitalists, is, is venture capitalism is a good thing um, but then also looks at you know the downsides and the dark sides of it you know the white man's club he says it's you know there's there's not much uh, you know not many women not much diversity in it um, but yeah definitely I would recommend it for anyone who has any interest in business who wants to know what, what's happening in Irish business now it will give you kind of an indication when you see all these tech layoffs it will give you an indication of why they are happening because there's no money kind of going into these companies so that would be my recommendation, definitely. Well, if there is such a thing, it certainly sounds like a glamorous book full of names that you'd know in business. Uh, that's The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Art of Disruption by Sebastian Malabé. And that was Linda Daly of The Sunday Times. Linda, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a million. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, Sean Keyes of The Currency and Joe Miller of The Financial Times about their favourite books of the year. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and now I'm joined from New York by Joe Miller of the Financial Times. Joe, you're very welcome back to Taking Stock. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me again. Now, Joe, you were the Frankfurt correspondent for the Financial Times and recently moved to New York. Will you be spending Christmas there? 
Uh, I will indeed, yes. My first Christmas in New York. Oh, very nice. Well, look, thanks for joining us for this special edition of Taking Stock. And uh, you've chosen a very interesting book for us. Can you just tell us a little bit about about the book, uh, Nazi Billionaires? What's the premise for it? Yes, I'm afraid not a very Christmassy theme, um, but it was a book I picked up, uh, as you mentioned, while I was in Germany covering German industry. Um, And it's a book by David de Jong, who was a uh, Bloomberg journalist, um, essentially delving into the fairly familiar story of how German industry was culpable um, in the Holocaust um, and how it became essentially the engine of um, the Nazi uh, war efforts and indeed uh, was built on uh, slave labor and mass exploitation. But the reason I picked it up and the reason I thought I'd you know, give this story another look is that the names that de Jong uh, decided to focus on are names that are somewhat familiar to people covering Germany today or indeed, you know, those familiar with with German industry today. Um, and his book really uh, is a, a chance to sort of refocus and ask why these companies and why the descendants of uh, those who carried out the most egregious acts during the Holocaust seem to sidestep um, talking about it or, um, you know, having a true reckoning with their past. And and the book really um, drives home how for all that we talk about Germany's remembrance culture and as a society, it is fairly good about talking about its past and reckoning with its past when you go to the boardrooms of some of its largest companies there's a little bit more unease about facing up to um, the misdeeds of the the 1930s and 40s and tell us and tell us a little bit more about those companies that we might be familiar with today who are you talking about so the one that uh, really struck me was porsche um porsche has uh, gone public this year it was the biggest ipo in Germany for an awful long time, a partial IPO, I should say. Uh, and we're all familiar with the Porsche name, um, you know, Ferdinand Porsche, a famous engineer. Um, but actually, the company, uh, the Stutt- which is based in Stuttgart, was founded by three people. Um, one of them was Adolf Rosenberger. Uh, he was a German Jew. He was an uh, auto engineer himself and a driver, a racing driver. Um, and uh, if you go to Porsche's website um, or if you look at their company materials, you will find almost no mention of Adolf Rosenberger. Now, Adolf Rosenberger was a Jew. Um, he was arrested um, by the Gestapo for the alleged crime of, of dating a non-Jewish woman. Um, and he was bought out by Ferdinand Porsche and his son-in-law for uh, a very small fraction of what his stake would have been worth in about 1935, or at least that's what he claimed. Um, and this story, which should be so central to the history of Borsha, has essentially been written out of, of the company's history, more or less. Um, Rosenberg went to, to California, he fled to California, and he spent his life essentially contending that his co-founders had essentially used his, uh, he said, use my membership as a Jew to get rid of me cheaply. Uh, and it's just very interesting to me that with all of the coverage that we had of Porsche and with all of the love for the brand, that the company has more or less got away 
with not addressing this part of its history. I'm sure it has a, you know, a different narrative as, mm. uh, as to what Rosenberger did or didn't do. But nonetheless, the silence is incredible, if you ask me. So overall, would you say, Joe, revisionism is a, is a big part of this book? It's an interesting question whether we're talking about revisionism or whether we're talking about a sense that all of this has been dealt with. Mm. So um, a lot of the attitudes um, that David de Jong sort of talks about in the book um, are sort of attitudes that were prevalent in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, when Germany was beginning to boom again and when there was a feeling that, you know, okay, there's been, you know, 30 to 40 years of looking into all of this and, you know, of of writing past wrongs and we can now draw a line underneath it. But of course, our uh, assessment of the culpability of various individuals changes over time. And I think what's interesting is that a lot of these companies don't want to reopen the mm. records. They don't want to go back and say, oh, actually, you know, we understated how bad things were. And, you know, a good example is, for example, um, BMW and um, Herbert Krant, who, um, whose descendants still own almost half of BMW, was a a, a large supporter of the Nazi regime. His, um, his ex-wife was um, married to, to Joseph Goebbels, the famous uh, propagandist. And um, BMW, yes, you know, it cites um, its past, but it doesn't do an awful lot to um, essentially uh, revisit whether the quant name should really be um, used as, uh, you know, the, or given the prestige that it is within German society and German industry. Well, Joe, thank you very much for taking the time to share that with us. Certainly uh, an interesting book for anyone interested in history or modern German business. But for now, uh, we'd like to wish you a happy Christmas and enjoy your first Christmas in New York, Joe. And a happy Christmas to you. This is News Talks Taking Stock with me, Bandy Johnston, and I'm talking to some of our favourite guests about the books of the year that they liked. You never know, it might help you pick up some last minute gifts for those people in your life who are hung up on business and politics. Next up, I'm joined by Sean Keyes of The Currency. Sean, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. Now, Sean, The Currency itself is a big advocate of the big read. It's it's your business model, really. Uh, what's the appetite for long reads nowadays with so much news going on? Well, we're, we're, we're betting the firm uh, that there is appetite for them. Um, I think, look, it depends on your business model. If you are, maybe if you are uh, a printed newspaper with, and you're trying to reach a wide number of people every single day and maybe, you know, you're charging two or three euro for the, for the paper, then it's hard to make long reads work because, you know, they might, a small number of people might really intensely like them, but a large number of people might not be find the time or find the interest. But uh, what, with what we do, we try to do long reads, make them work, f- find an audience for them. Might be a smaller audience, but you know that, that they're they're that they're fan- they're big enough fans that they're happy to subscribe. And you, as a journalist, Sean, um, you know, it must be very rewarding to be able to have the time and scope to write a longer piece with so much pressure on turning news things around so quickly. Do you find it a rewarding sort of style of work to to work on? Uh, it is, of course. Yeah, it's good. I mean. It comes with its own like pressures, and uh, you know, not, nothing is nothing is perfect in any in every way. When you're sort of there, there is a feeling when you've been given, you've been allocated a couple of days or weeks on a project, and as the time is 
the deadline is approaching, uh, you realize that you're actually, you've got to justify a lot of, a lot of faith has been placed in you and a lot of time has been invested in this, so you've got to justify it. Um, so it, that's, that's the downside, but I mean, it is great to get to explore things properly, yeah. Mm, sounds a bit like leaving all your homework to a Sunday night, Sean. I didn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, the work is done consistently and, and, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, look, let's get back to the books. Um, tell us about your book choice for 2022. My book is called Restarting the Future and it's by Stephen Westlake and Jonathan Haskell. Excuse me. And it's a, a follow-up to a book that they wrote a couple of years ago. Um, those, the, those two authors are really into this idea of intangible assets and it's it's uh, i've given myself a a task i think to to talk about this on the radio because it's like by its nature the most abstract kind of book imaginable because it's it's literally about the things in in the world and the economy that you can't see and you can't touch Mm. so you know for 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 example you know companies a company will have two types of assets it'll have tangible assets and intangible ones and intangible ones are all the ones that you see around you that you can kick and you can see and they are things like buildings and factories and machines and cars and so on and computers and the other types of assets which the company own are intangibles and that's the subject of the book and intangibles are things like it's it, 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 it's 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 a it's a bit of jargon for describing it. It's basically like ideas or information, and it's like an intangible asset is a useful idea or a bit of information that a company would want to own. So an example of it would be, you know, the Google algorithms, or you know, when Disney bought Marvel Studios and bought the rights to all of its its content, or it would be you know a, a formula or a patent. It's, it's all these sort of knowledge knowledge uh, knowledge work knowledge assets. And so that's what, that's what they are. And the contention of the book is that, you know, even though knowledge work and knowledge assets are getting more and more important in the modern economy, that the systems of our sort of, of our society aren't that well set up to handle them. And they're more set up for sort of 20th century cap- capitalism, capitalism of factories and machinery and so on. And that that's a problem and actually the rules in our society are actually inhibiting our ability to come up with new ideas and that is causing really big problems it's like lowering living standards and so on. So would brand identity and reputation, would that fit into intangibles? Absolutely, yep. And so is the premise of this book is restarting the future. So, so is it saying that there's a transition ongoing or what's the premise of the actual book? So it's, it's saying, it's sort of, getting into like what do we mean by intangibles what are their what are their core kind of characteristics and it goes into i'll give i'll give you them quickly there's four s's right so they're easier to easier to remember so that the the, the 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 essential characteristics of these things that we're talking about is one that they're scalable so you know an, an intangible asset can be used on you know a tiny company or a massive company you know when when, when the guys from stripe invented that their their api for handling money they were able to use it for a tiny startups or for you know a thousand huge startups and it was all the same to them it was kind of scalability um second one is that they have spillover effects and that that's interesting because it means if a company comes up with a really good and useful and valuable intangible asset it's actually really hard for it to kind of protect it and keep it to itself mm. because the nature of it is that people can copy it, right? People can kind of, maybe they can't exactly copy the Google, Google algorithm, but you know, the, 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 the kind of 
the basic idea of it leaks out and people do, in effect, copy it and they come up with it themselves and they, they, they reuse it themselves. So the second characteristic is that, yeah, they, they have spillover effects and they're hard for, the, they're hard for companies to exclude other, other companies from, from using them. Um, another one is that they've got synergies, which means that like, by their nature, they're good, at, they're good, at, they're good for combining. They're, you can combine them really well with each other. So, you know, you can't, you can't combine like a factory and a, mach- and, you know, a new machine necessarily, but you can combine, um, you know, what, the example I used was when Disney bought Marvel, it, was, it had its, its own Disney Plus uh, system over here. So it was able to bring two of them together, put Marvel out using Disney Plus, and all of a sudden everything, all of it's more valuable. So they can be combined in that way, synergies. And the fourth one is that it's a sunk cost. So if a company invest tons of money into creating an intangible asset because it is very expensive to come up with new you know new software or whatever it might be that if it doesn't work out if it fails then you the company basically has mm. to just write that off mm. you can't just like sell it on to the next guy like a factory or something like that mm. so yeah these that's the, they're i'm very very gradually coming around to answer your question mandy um, <laughs> so the, the point the, the point is that we get given these given these characteristics um that we need to come up with sort of new rules, new systems in our society to sort of allow us to create these things more freely. Well, Sean, that sounds very interesting. Certainly something for any kind of one interested in the creative side of businesses or even uh, business in general, that that you'd be aware of the the intangible and creative side of your business. But Sean, uh, that's it for now, I'm afraid. Uh, We'll have to leave it there. That's Sean Keyes of The Currency. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up, Will Hutton, political economist and columnist for The Observer and Guardian, joins us with his review of the book that virtually won every business book of the year award. Find out about it all after the break. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, our final item and what is our final show of the year this year? I'm joined now by Will Hutton, who's political economist and columnist for The Observer and Guardian newspapers in the UK. Will, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining us on this special edition of Taking Stock. Delighted to be here, Mandy. Now, before we learn about your favourite book of 2022, I just want to start by congratulating you firstly that you have a government that is still intact after one month. Rishi Sunak is surviving. Matt Hancock has survived the jungle and all is right with the world over there, it seems. So how do you, how do you think they're doing? Indifferently. I mean, you suddenly realise, I mean, I, of course, I mean, we're all Democrats and I'm sure this is true in the Republic as well as Britain, but actually uh, it really is important in a democracy to win a mandate from your electorate. Sunak hasn't done that. A majority of Tory MPs voted for him, but no one else, um, you know, not, not even Tory activists, and certainly not the wider electorate. And so there he is kind of, and he's kind of, and it's ducking and weaving so, you know, he, he's running up a white flag over, for example, the target to build 300,000 houses. Uh, really shameful retreat. Uh, on the other hand, positively, um, he's put the passage of the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill on, on pause, hoping to get a deal with uh, Brussels over um, Northern Ireland. So that's a kind of piece of good news. But it's kind of what you feel is, is the government hasn't got a kind of, there's no, there's no direction of travel. There's no kind of objective apart from survival and apart from keeping the Tory party together. So in the opinion polls, I mean, there's a slight improvement, but 
but they're still essentially you know massively behind labor i i kind of feel that the the british have made their mind up that when they're given the opportunity they're going to get rid of the conservative party and that's certainly and the conservative government and that's certainly the the kind of view of many tory mps who are you know um, standing down i mean Tan, matt hancock is mm. one but there's others too who are saying they're going to stand down so uh, the next election and, and of course the big 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 thing that's happening is actually strikes and a real sense that actually maybe the strikers are right and the government is trying to blame it all on the union bosses but actually there's enough you know nurses post office delivery workers people coming on camera to explain that they just can't make ends meet on the money that they're being paid and you know when right wing newspapers like this morning daily express support the, the nurses you realize that the that the, the attempt to spin a narrative that this is dark malevolent mm. union bosses against the national interest uh, isn't working and actually you know the people really think they're misgoverned and the misgovernment is coming through in the kind of poverty of people who work in crucial public sector jobs so you ask me how things are going i would say um, indifferently to poor is mm. the, is my, my is the, is is my judgment. Well, I accept your analysis that there's a lack of direction, but from this remove, at least it looks like you know it, it, there's an element of control now that that just wasn't there for the last six months. But you did also predict that if they didn't get their arms around the cost of living crisis, it would all result in kind of social unrest. And as you say, they're kind of targeting the or, or trying to paint the union leaders uh, as the villains in this particular pantomime. But look, it's Christmas. Let's move on. Just to just a footnote on that. I mean, uh, you know, this is a, this is a year in which you've seen three prime ministers in Britain and four chancellors of the Exchequer. And, you know, at least for the last six weeks, we've had one prime minister and one chancellor. And you do kind of feel that they are that they're likely to be there this time next year. That hasn't been true in any of our interviews over the course of this year. <laughs> now, that's absolutely right. Now, moving down to the book. This book that you've chosen has been shortlisted for virtually every book award going. It's been described as a savage analysis of Britain's soul. Tell us what book you've chosen, Will, and why you've chosen it. I chanced upon this, actually, um, Butler to the World. Uh, it caught my eye in a bookshop and I, and, uh, I was riveted. Um, why I like it is that it's something I've always thought but have uh, hasn't been nailed in quite the way that Oliver Bullough succeeds in nailing, which is that Britain has been far too far too casual to the point of malfeasance really over um, dirty money mm. and being and this idea of being butler to the world is that um, we are just um, rather like Jeeves uh, c- cleverly. Um, bending every rule that can be bent uh, in order to achieve uh, not a kind of genial kind of um, country bumpkin um, like like Bertie Wooster, but I mean every kind of um, uh, crook syndicate, crime syndicate, where there is malfeasance, um, uh, where there's dirty money, you'll find that one way or another, the British are opening their doors to it. Oliver Bullough does actually give a, he regularly, I think once a fortnight, you can get on his double-decker bus with him and he'll take you around London, uh, showing you kind of who owns um, 
what rich property from what kind of corrupt regime the money has come from. It's an extraordinary kind of story of the way in which so much of central London property is now you know, owned by kind of some of the darkest people in the world. Mm. So what he, whether it's gambling, uh, whether it's the rise of Gibraltar, whether it's the, the kind of rise of the Cayman Islands, the role of the Isle of Man, uh, he spells it out and he takes, he takes, he holds your hand as he takes you through a series of kind of uh, vignettes of how the British have indulged this kind of network of tax havens, uh, which intrudes into the heart of the city of London, um, and actually uh, the way in which parts of the country uh, are owned. And at the end of the book, you know, you really do want there to be kind of change. And, and the collusion of actually the Treasury in kind of not wanting there to be a kind of economic crime bill and an economic crime act, not wanting there to be registers of who owns what property in Britain, uh, allows all this to carry on in this way. And it, we, we, I mean, Britain has permitted itself within the G7 and within the OECD more widely to become a kind of you know, midwife mm. to some of the worst financial practice and kind of dubious um, behaviours kind of globally. And it's it's a must read. It is a, an extraordinary book. When I heard you were recommending it, I, I immediately rushed out to buy it. And it's <laughs> a real, no, it's a real page turner. But I have to admit, when I saw the title, I thought this is a bit glib. This is a bit lazy. But when you think of it, our perception of a butler is strong, upstanding man with a moral compass, well turned out. But actually, when you get down to thinking what a butler is, it's it's paymaster's servant, the, the most well-dressed fixer in the world. And actually, this book, as you say, takes you through all the different categorizations of that. But the 1950s well, were an important turning point in the book. Can you tell us why that is? Yeah, I mean, he's one of the nice things he does, uh, I think, and he, sh he he does it through the kind of life stories of people who are kind of district commissioners in, in parts of the empire who are kind of looking for something to do. And they and they end up, they wind up in, in the Cayman Islands or in Gibraltar developing these offshore financial centres. Britain in the 1950s, early 1960s, the city of London is anxious to retain, return regain the preeminence it had um, before the 1418 war um, when Britain you know ran the world gold standard and the city of London was the world financial center par with no rivals although New York was coming up strongly on the rails by the time of the first world war 1955 you know you're losing an empire um, you've um, the Suez has gone wrong on you 1956. In order to kind of build the city of London back back up again in a world in which sterling is no longer so strong, you have to have a blind eye um, to um, all these surplus dollars. And you permit London to become a kind of offshore financial center and the development of the euro dollar markets, where actually dollars were held by American banks and American multinationals. They never brought them back to, to the US jurisdiction. Mm. They held them in deposits in their London branches. And uh, they could then they could didn't have to pay tax on the interest on they 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 were being paid. And London became a financial center based on dollars that weren't repatriated to the United States. It's called the Eurodollar market. And out of that grew a kind of network. Um, of financial centres, and of course, you know, the, in in the West Indies, uh, mm. you know, and Gibraltar. I mean, 
what were they to do? I mean, Gibraltar was kind of really, really poor and became a kind of gambling center, as it, as, as, as Oliver Buller describes, kind of uh, was part and parcel of this kind of not looking too closely at, uh, you know, the way in which a, a jurisdiction like Gibraltar could have its own rules, pay no tax, but still have the British legal system upholding contracts. Mm. So you were butler in the sense you looked upright, you were and you are proper, and actually you, 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 there's a legal system which will serve you. But to do things which actually are amoral or improper or literally avoiding tax, and it all had its roots really in turning the city of London from being a place where you bought and sold financial assets denominated in sterling to one where you denominated in dollars and no questions asked about where those dollars came from. That strange regulation construct that exists right throughout the book is is quite the part of why um, the UK and Britain are so successful at uh, facilitating all of this. We shouldn't use the word success, Mandy. We shouldn't use the word success. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's it's not not something to be proud of. And there's these astonishing gaps, you know, in in the Scottish legal system, which, uh, you know, allows you to kind of um, incorporate companies without questions asked. I mean, there's all kinds of gaps in the British legal structure that were exploited. He calls it the Scottish laundromat. Yes, (laughs) yes. Well, we we won't go down a rabbit hole of regulation, but if you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Will Hutton about his favourite book of 2022, Butler to the World. Well, there's there's a chapter in this book. Of course, the book was written, we should say, when Boris Johnson was still prime minister. There's a chapter in this book that's called Down the Tubes. I don't know if you remember it, but it, it largely focuses on um, a Russian oligarch, Fiatash. For me, yeah, yeah, it kind yeah. of sums up the entire um, problem with, with what's going on in, in Britain and their connections there. And it kind of brings us right up to the present day. And actually, you know, the issue with Ukraine. I mean, you know. Yes, the, absolutely. The Russian yeah, yeah, yeah. invasion of Ukraine. Ukraine. So, so you might just tell us a little bit about who who Filitash is and how ingrained he became in um, the UK system. He, he made his money in botched privatizations of um, the Soviet Union, which did include Ukraine. Um, and uh, he then tries, he, he then kind of inserts himself. He, he tries to, get, in order to get leg- legitimacy, he earns his money basically through the energy company Gazprom and that that reconstruction of the Soviet Union in 1991, and he ends up um, investing in Cambridge and and sponsoring all sorts of research pro- programs there, and then he ends up sitting beside Prince Philip at a dinner, and ultimately he buys an asset from the British government that Boris Johnson had been. Um, yeah, it's the it's the. It's the um it's, it's this tube station, isn't it? The um, in in, yeah, in the just underground. I used to live opposite, actually. It was in it's in the Brompton Road, isn't it? Yeah, and but the, it kind but, of takes you full circle from somebody who has made his money um, in Russia through the you know um, through the split of the Soviet Union right up to today, where somebody um, who has earned their money through Putin and that regime is living in London, buying state assets from the British government and welcomed with open arms. Yeah, and and welcomed in particular by by Boris Johnson. We've got to be careful what we say because um, 
he's a very litigious guy. So we have to be quite careful about how we describe him. But I mean, I mean, what we can say is what the book says, which is that you know there were certainly uh, authorities. Um, in Britain and in the States as well, actually, wanted to amass evidence about his potential prosecution. They did try to kind of nail him. But actually, it was his standing in Britain that actually allowed him to kind of see off these efforts by kind of American and even Italians actually wanted to get to get. Yeah, it, it sort of made him, gave him an air of respectability um, that he wouldn't have had The otherwise. FBI did get him, didn't they? I mean, they did in the end. They did in the end, but it's really about, um, I suppose, London facilitating him and, you know, the body politic there, welcoming, welcoming someone like that with open arms and indeed encouraging him to invest in state assets uh, and sell them really what could be very strategic. The FBI, I mean, the chapter ends with the FBI um, managing to prosecute Firtash which the British government never did. I mean, Firtash is the origins of his money, interestingly, in collusion with an earlier regime in, in Ukraine. I mean, the Ukraine wasn't under Zelensky. We, you know, we think of Ukraine as a kind of virtuous state, but actually there was, you know, there was a lot of criminality, dodgy capitalism going on with oil pipelines crossing Ukraine and the Ukrainians kind of trying to get um, economic rent off it. Firtash was involved in all of that. Well, look, I think I think we've got a good flavour of what the book is, what the book is about. Uh, we're obviously not going to read through every single chapter, which is highly possible for me now. But I just want to say thank you very much for all your contributions over the year. You've been a great addition to our programme and we'd like to wish you happy Christmas. And we hope that we get to talk to you again in 2023. Mandy, I'm, uh, it's been a delight talking to you guys. You give your interviewees an opportunity to hang themselves Um and to express their opinions. Um, and I, I always enjoy being interviewed by you and I enjoy the show a lot. So, uh, you know, a happy Christmas and a prosperous new year to you and all your listeners. And the same to you. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this special episode of Taking Stock. And thanks to all of today's guests and my guests throughout the year and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo De Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae's up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. We won't be broadcasting next week as it's Christmas Day, but let me take this opportunity to wish you all a very happy Christmas. Thank you for listening throughout the year and we'll do it all again in 2023.